I've been building toward this, this talk. Um, the other two talks are very polished in the sense of I know what I'm talking about, I think. <laughs> um, this one, I'm not sure what I'm going to say. But I am sure what I'm going to say, just not sure that I want to actually say it. Uh, they, they asked me to talk about stopping the white noise. That's a show I do with my wife, Meredith, on Saturdays. It's one of, I don't know, seven or ten shows I've done over the last 15 years, starting with Worldview Everlasting on YouTube. Uh, bringing Meredith on and, and using the platform uh, with her voice has been a challenging but very valuable experience for us as a, as a marriage, uh, but then also intentionally trying to uh, become and put ourselves forward uh, as examples for a generation that's looking to see what a, a marriage looks like. Um, what, what does it mean to have been married 20 years uh, and to still love each other as Christians in spite of things as radical as complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which um, frankly leads to suicide for many, many people. Um, I shouldn't be here kind of as the numbers speak. Uh, so in any case, bringing Meredith on really changed the tenor of the show, and I know the audience has shifted quite a bit. Uh, a lot of you know me from Worldview Everlasting and from uh, Brief History of Power, maybe more than from Stop the White Noise. But on Stop the White Noise, Meredith and I just live in front of you as Christians every week. We talk about all sorts of stuff, and we, we don't hold back. We don't shy away from any topic because, really, it shouldn't be that serious. If you want to debate about nutrition, we should debate about nutrition and then realize we're all going to die. And, and so, you know, <laughs> the proverb says, feast for strength and not for pleasure. I, I think that's good wisdom. That's something to pay attention to. Um, but there isn't, you know, biblical diet doctrine or anything like that. And one of the hardest things that we've experienced has been how many people just don't want us to talk about life, while at the same time so many people are getting out of the show that we're talking about life. Uh, and uh, to maybe quote Dr. Kuntz, how life is a gift, and how knowing that life is a gift changes the way that you live it. So, well, so the show is called Stop the White Noise, and that is intentionally um, my desire for my wife and I to blockade out from our own brains, our own spiritual daily walks, the madness of American society, which we and I believe is anti-Christ, um, anti-biblical, and very intentionally undermining uh, any true belief in, in the one true God uh, while lying to your face about it the entire way. Um, how do we stop that voice of the devil from having a foothold in our lives? And it means that somewhere, all of those messages that we're coming across every day in our life, the ones we can't avoid, we have to start deciding we're going to avoid some of them. We're just going to say no to the medium by which the devil gets to talk to me or us today. That's the purpose of the show. Not for you to do that, for us to do that and do it in front of everybody uh, so that you get to see what it does to us, um, what the result of uh, our lives being committed, choosing to walk with more scripture in my life as an actual time presence than entertainment as a time presence. Um, so it can, does that make sense? That if I'm going to watch an hour of TV, I will have at least read the Bible for two hours. 
That's stopping the white noise to me, for me. It's what I needed as an addict. Um, and uh, one of the problems with addicts is they often want everyone else to do it just like them when they quit certain things, right? You ever met someone who really quit coffee? <laughs> they're, they're proud of it, though. If you do, they really don't. You should, too, right? It's, it's, uh, we, I don't want to be heard saying that today. Um, my wife, though, this morning, she asked me uh, what I wanted to achieve by talking to you this weekend, if I could just say it quickly. And, and I, it took a second, but out of my mouth came, uh, I want to red pill as many of them as possible. <laughs> and then uh, inside of my own head, where I'm very good at criticizing, uh, I, I criticized myself. I said, that's exactly the problem. It's not a biblical metaphor. It's not a biblical idea. I don't want to red pill anybody. I want to Jonathan you, and by that I don't mean my name, I mean the guy for whom I am named, the son of Saul, uh, who one time on the basis of Leviticus, with one other guy attacked a stronghold of thousands of people and won, because he believed what Leviticus said. I want you to be that guy. I want to Hezekiah you. I want you to know that when you go into the temple of Jesus, which is your body now, <laughs> and you pray to God for deliverance, he hears you and sends answers. And the theology of the cross does not mean expect God to ignore you and force you into meaningless suffering. If you're going to suffer, you're going to know why. And you're even going to be a little bit glad for it when it comes. But in the meantime, you have God to call on. You know, so I want to Hezekiah you. I want a Saul of Tarsus you, right? Have the scales fall from the eyes. That kind of thing. Uh, but in what way do I mean that? The red pill works as, a, as a, uh, a metaphor because, well, maybe not we all. You date yourself a little bit when you have actually seen The Matrix. Um, but the, to, to reference the red pill works because there's a common feeling in society. And I don't mean Democrat or Republican. I mean just being English-speaking peoples. And that's that there's a secret, that there's a hidden reality, and that it isn't so good. Now, if you go back into literature, this is called cosmic horror, by the way. It's the hunch that something's terribly wrong and everybody's ignoring it. Red pilling is to stop having it be a hunch and be like, nope, see, it's wrong. Here's why. That's a powerful metaphor. And there's a reason people like Cobra Tate, one of the most influential men in the world right now, a former kickboxer, definitely comes off as a chauvinist, but speaks speaks, spits a lot of truth. Uh, he comes off as being one who's, who's understandable um, because he speaks directly. Because he believes that there is truth. Uh, and because then he, he also is in the path of what I would say is rejecting modernism. So what's the red pill really? If you want the red pill, it's not who's running the World Economic Forum, right? And that's interesting, right? Um, it's, it's not who's running the World Bank. That's interesting, too. It's not who's running Hollywood. That's interesting. We can talk about these things. You know, Hydra has many faces. Tutulu has many tentacles. Leviathan has ten heads. Why are you trying to pin the head on the devil? He's everywhere. He's everywhere. But the red pill is to recognize he's not in charge anywhere. Like, none of it is actually going in his favor. It's going in yours and in ours. 
But a large part of understanding that is then rejecting the modern lie, which is that life got better when we found electricity. You want, you want a red pill. Realize your life did not get better because of electricity. It got easier. That doesn't mean better. And that what we have sacrificed for electricity, which I'm planning to keep, by the way, for the record. I'm planning to keep it, okay? But what we have sacrificed, we haven't come to terms with yet. And the change that it has done to us in, in, in the way that we see the world. And it's as simple as, did you walk outside at night yet out here and look up, ye city dwellers? <laughs> yeah? And did you see how much electricity changes the sky? The sky, you know who was the god of the sky? His name was Baal. And the sky, you know who Genghis Khan worshipped? The sky. And we don't even see the sky anymore. That's to be modern. And it isn't about whether I have the right theory, it's about how I experience life and what I want to red pill you on, what I want to Jonathan you on, what I want to Hezekiah you on is that the modern progression that it all got better is a lie. Reject that idea and you'll live better in the midst of it. It'll just, it'll just the complexity of it all will still be as wicked as it is and as fear-mongering as it is, but you'll, you'll more or less just live within 30 feet of yourself. Here, let me give you an example. You don't have to do this. We've done this. Uh, you ever have that extended relative that, like, feel like you don't really want to? Haven't maybe thought through why, but if you did, you could probably write down why. You know why. Um, but you feel like you're supposed to because, I don't know, I mean, there was a commercial about like crying on the phone and the lights coming on GE. You know, don't you, I remember that? You don't remember that? Uh, you know, we're supposed to call home. It's where it's where families come together. It's the way that life works. How would you ever live without a phone call to mom on the weekend? Well, because everybody did until a little while ago. Why are you feeling guilty about it? It's my real question. To red pill out of modernism is not to let modern things make you feel shame for not using them. As if it's now like my duty, if somebody in my extended family dies in California, to be there next week. Like that's a cool luxury. That's a really cool luxury, it's not my duty. It's ridiculous, it's kind of magic if you think about it, like a non-modern person. But we're so modern, we don't think about it. Hey, honey, I'm going to run to the store. Oh, really? You're going to sweat? No. No, I'll be uncomfortable, though, for sure, and it'll take at least you know, 20 minutes to an hour. Not much of a run, then, is it? More of a journey. Why don't we say that? Hey, honey, I'm going to journey to the store. As we don't want to believe how much damage we're doing to ourselves. That's why. That's the red pill. Okay, so, all right. I, I'm going to come back to that a little bit, but I want to shift directions here. Um, love your enemies. If, if I woke up in 2020, it is to the biblical idea that I have enemies and that it is good for me to pray against them. The first kind of American pacifistic argument against that idea, which notice says part of the Bible is not true, don't believe it, because part of the Bible says this, and what part of the Bible says is love your enemies. 
Jesus says, love your enemies. And now we think that means be nice at all times to everyone, even though the Bible says pray against your enemies. So recovering what loving my enemy really means in Jesus' terms is important. And it starts with a couple of basic red pill moments. Again, love your enemies never has meant you're not going to have enemies. I want to talk about where the Lutheran Church in Missouri Synod could wake up. The ELCA is not our enemy. <laughs> they're like our really annoying cousin, okay? Like, they're not, the enemy is Antifa. Or the enemy is the trans lobby. That's the enemy. The enemy is the Nimrodian globalist empire that started with Assyria and it's never stopped. And God knows it's an awful beast with many heads. But that's the enemy, right? And to be sure, does the enemy talk in some ELCA pulpits? Yes. Does the enemy talk in some LCMS pulpits? Yeah, 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 he does. Uh, love your enemies does not mean expect to have none. It means expect to have enemies, and that is not just people who don't like you. That means people who want you dead, people who hate you. And if you haven't seen the hate that is being poured out upon Christians, then you're not watching the right alternative media, <laughs> uh, frankly. Uh, you have to go to the, the first sources to find this stuff these days. But did you notice how there was a shooting at a Christian school, and the one we're supposed to feel bad for is the shooter this time? Did you notice that? Did you see that in the news? Because it was in the news. Feel bad for the shooter, those awful Christians. So uh, we are going to have enemies, and, and to expect them to get increasingly vitriolic, um, even like Philistine, in the sense of they want to get rid of us, um, don't be surprised if that happens, nor let your first reaction be, we got to get some guns. Because that's not the first reaction. No. That, that doesn't mean that you can't defend yourself. Follow the law. Follow the law, right? But the first reaction of the Christian, knowing that I have enemies who are going to want to destroy me, is to realize I can't stop that if God doesn't. And so if I have enemies, it's because they're enemies of Jesus. And actually, Jesus has promised to crush them under my feet. I, I'll, they'll like lick my feet and then I'll bathe in their blood. Like it says that kind of stuff. And I know that's the Old Testament, but this is Jesus too. Huh? Uh, do I not feast upon his, his very blood? Right? So, love your enemies. Uh, it, it also does not mean this. It doesn't mean you won't have enemies, and it does not mean aid and abet your enemies. Especially if they're not just kind of personal enemies, but they're evil. Love your enemies. Jesus didn't say, help the evil people, don't worry about it. Like, that was not what he said. He didn't say, love evil. So here's a, a good kind of way that Lutherans can break our brains on this. Are you breaking the Eighth Commandment if you're hiding in a bush while a Nazi walks, walks by looking for you? The Nazi's the authority. He's walking by. He's looking for you. You're in the bush. You're hiding. Aren't you going to tell the truth? You're breaking the Eighth Commandment now, aren't you? That's the kind of stupid mind game we do. Like, obviously, the right thing to do is to hide from the Nazi, get home to your family, and take care of them, get them to safety. That's clearly the right thing to do. Right? And so telling the truth in that moment means staying silent in the face of your enemy's persecution. 
It doesn't mean I sneak up behind the Nazi and put one in the back of his head. It doesn't mean that. Although, you might have that vocation if you're a soldier. And you might find yourself as a soldier in something that one person calls a rebellion, another person calls a revolution. And that history isn't just an American reality. That goes all the way back through history. So you're going to have to figure out where you stand when you're standing there. But in the meantime, to know that you have these enemies and you're not compelled by God to obey them just because they said, do this evil thing, is very imperative for us now as Christians. Um, I, there was a lot of different reactions to COVID-19 in Missouri Synod churches. And I can't blame anyone for any of it because the wool was over my eyes. Um, but what I hope we've all figured out now is, no, Mr. Government, we're not shutting down on Sunday morning, no matter what you say. And that there's no going back from that. Because uh, if we didn't figure that out, well, then our churches are going to close. And some of them will, by the way. <laughs> some of them will in the next 30 years. Uh, but we, we need to know where we draw lines, right, with our enemies, and that when someone comes and says, do this thing that Jesus said don't do, or do it opposite of Jesus, or Jesus wouldn't have said it this way if he were here now, any of that, you just, you don't ever obey that. Even if he's got Caesar's sword and he says, in the name of Caesar, do it. You don't. You disobey evil. Now, how you apply that to what happened to your church in, in 2020, you, you don't do it all in hindsight. Like, ask the question and then repent and move on or be glad and move on. The real issue is what happens next, right? Uh, what happens next? Because the fact of 2020, but it really, it goes back to post-World War II UN resolutions. Dr. Kuntz will tell you about that on one of those Brief History of Power episodes. I can't quote which one like he can. Um, but because of this, the, the unavoidable brave new world that we are entering is one in which Christians can't presume to be allowed to exist. You can't assume they're going to let you stay Christian where you are in the global reality right now. Um, I don't think that means fight. I think that means pray. Um, I think it means to know that our future existence in any particular place cannot be taken for granted, and that's always been true, and how did we forget? <laughs> uh, we got blessed is how we forgot. Christendom was pretty cool. Uh, Christians ruled for a while, but we got a bit arrogant, and then we decided the Bible wasn't true. That's about 1880 or so. Right? Now here we are. Um, we've entered into this place that we can't presume we're going to still be here. To presume we're going to still be here is to rest on pride. What we rather are here to do is to call out to God to keep us here because he will. But do you see the difference in posture? Now, part of this then comes back to some of that initial red pill I was talking about, where whether or not you're going to go where I've gone in terms of screen, screen usage, and my concern that looking at a talking image is idolatry on some level, unless you're a Christian, and then it's dangerously close to deceiving you. So you don't have to go there with me, but that is where I'm at. Okay. Um, what I think you need to reckon with, you must understand, is that entertainment is a force that takes the strong and makes them weak. Watch a movie at 2 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Try to walk outside at 
you'll feel what I'm talking about. It's a universal reality. It doesn't mean never be entertained. However, in a society in which the primary goal of every day is to be entertained as long as possible every day, that's why we're weak. It's that easy, really, and it's that hard because the entertainment helps soothe the pain of the futile and frustrating life of modern drudgery that we all got to deal with all the time. But we're weak, and that weakness is from needing to be soothed in our victimhood as opposed to, again, trying to stand in spite of the suffering. Now, this is not about respect, although I think respect has a lot to do with what we feel as men. We are disrespected in our civilization now. Uh, the average man on TV, if he is of our ethnicity, is a doofus. He's a bumbler. Uh, Homer Simpson is the father's father of the American reality. Um, uh, so we're disrespected all over the place. Uh, but it's not about respect. That's what we ought to have is more respect. But if we come and say we ought to have more respect, like no one's going to care. What it's about is having integrity. Integrity is what earns respect. Guys, really, it, it commands respect, is what it does. It commands it. And integrity is, uh, you could call it sincerity of heart, you could call it straightforwardness. It's that you're going to do what you say, you're going to say what you do, and where that comes into conflict, you're going to repent. You're going to know that that's going to be part of your life the rest of your life is repentance. As you come into conflict in doing what you would not do, and have said you don't want to do, or in trying to do what you want to do and being unable to fully bring it to pass. This is about having integrity. And the integrity of your mind then, the ability to bring to pass what you think requires more than anything else in human life, silence. You need silence every day, like for a pro, I mean, I don't get it, an hour and a half. People used to sit and stare at a fire and everything would process. They'd think about what was, and it would, it would resonate and deepen and, and grow strong, and they'd have ideas that stayed. Right now, you're so busy swatting away and grabbing ideas left and right and pulling, and you can't hold anything for very long. You don't know what you forgot in the last two weeks. Yeah. So it's, it's not about, like, this tool bad, get rid of it. It's more about look at what the tool is and what it does and we've got to learn how to have some discipline and integrity with the tool. It can't just be, oh, I feel like scrolling again. Like, if that's your life, you're going to be spiritually weak. Because you're just giving away your soul every time you flip. You're, you're shoving dopamine artificially into your head. And once that dopamine rush goes up, it's going to come down. And then you're going to need more. And so you're going to go get some coffee. You're going to go get some other thing, sugar, to go get that dopamine rush. Right, and then on and on you go chasing what is effectively an addictive drug that, yes, they've sold the children for 40, 50, 60 years, and now we're all addicted to it. I'm talking about sugar specifically, and you can ask me about that. There's research on it. It's, it sugar, cane sugar, terribly addictive, worse than cocaine. Uh, and, and so here we are with these chemicals in our bodies, with these words being shoved through our minds by stories that are entertaining but then don't strengthen us. They haven't grown the church. <coughs> Did the sound of music create a generation of families that sit around and sing songs together? Yeah, no. It created a generation of families that sit around and watch the sound of music together, and now that's boring. We've got to watch 
well, you know, Teletubbies talking about transgender ideas and whatnot. How fast it changed. America has become a suburban wasteland, and it is filled with morbidity, addiction, and what I would call peasant, peasant-mindedness. Um, I said in the earlier session that we're serfs, and we should admit it. Now, I guess classically, serfs can't move. Um, but, you know, if you've got a mortgage, you can't move until you get rid of that mortgage, right? So we were serfs. Um, we live in indentured servitude, and this is commonplace to the history of mankind. Uh, very few of man are ever in the true elite. Um, but there's a big difference between being someone who doesn't have freedom to do whatever you want whenever you want to do it, and being peasant-minded, serf-minded, thinking like a slave, as opposed to like a freed man or, or like a brother, or like, oh, heaven bless you, a son of God. So the suburban reality, though, is peasant-minded. It thinks in terms of what I can get, when I can get it. Watch out for authority. Sneak around. Don't let anyone know who I really am. I get as much pleasure while I can. And in this, we are willingly subjecting ourselves to economic, political, and psychological warfare without, well, we know it. We make memes about it. We laugh. We're cynics. We think it's funny. Ha ha, look what they did this week to our country. Because what are we going to do? There's nothing we can do, but this is just it. We've submitted ourselves to psychological warfare. The machines are telling us what to think, and they've been telling us what to think for two generations. They've trained the way our minds believe. And we're like, what's going on? And I'm going to stand here and say, well, what's going on is they're brainwashing you with the talking box. And most people are going to say, I, uh, I can probably handle it. OK, well, if we all say I can handle it, it's just going to keep going on the slope that it's on right now. No. If there's not discipline to come in and get rid of what that talking box makes you, which is a victim. You're a victim. You need the box in order to feel up. Huh? And then the box tells you what you don't have. It's the main, you don't have this, and you should probably be afraid. That's the main message of the box. You don't have this, you should probably be afraid, but if you buy this, you might not be quite as afraid. Uh, those are the promises. And out of this world of humans raised on that, what we get is, uh, I'm offended by you. Right? Because you don't entertain me. Entertainment makes me feel good. I should have nothing but what I see on TV, and I choose what I see on TV. I should have nothing but what I see on TV be what I see in my life. I'm offended. But notice, to be offended, that means I'm a victim. Except I'm going to scream, I'm a victim at you, <laughs> right? I'm offended. Uh, but, but this is, again, what's a victim? It's someone who has no power. None. Zip. They are fatalistically tied to where they are. <laughs> And the best minds of history have insisted that's a mentality. That you can be bound in chains at the bottom of a dungeon and not be a victim. But it's really about what you believe at that moment. And again, here we are, sons of God, anointed by Jesus Christ to rise from the dead on the last day. Who can victimize you? But that's what that machine is doing to us. It's made victims of us all. It's torn our families apart. It's torn our church body apart. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, again, I didn't know what I was going to say today. Some of this, um, I'm letting out what I feel. And so, again, disagree. That's all good in my book. But think about it. That's what I want. Um, 
There's a, there is a prohibition or a statement in most LCMS congregation constitutions. If it's not there, it used to be. And it certainly is in the synodical constitution. Um, and that is this, it is that there shall be no unorthodox materials used in any way by members of synod. So books, hymnals, newspapers, flyers, anything you print up till 1950 had to be very carefully scrutinized. You didn't get to go pick out a book at the library and just read it. You, you only read what the group read. Now we got young pastors worried about the library in the basement of the church because they get there and it's filled with cruddy romantic fiction for Christian middle-aged women, and it is, and they're worried about that while those middle-aged women are watching Oprah all day. I mean, how can you possibly care about what's printed on your church bulletin board when everyone's going to go home and watch TV anyway? Like, what, what fight are you fighting? Like, you're not going to win. You're going to lose. The, the TV is far more powerful than anything you printed. We're all fighting about the large catechism, if you're familiar with that. If you're not, God bless you. But I agree. Everything that's written that they say is wrong is wrong. But you know what? It's not doing near the damage that everyone scrolling through Twitter to argue about it are doing to themselves and each other. Not because of the argument, just because of their addiction to Twitter. I mean, red pill, right? It's, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much like a radical on this one now. Um, and it's because I'm not going to be offended anymore. <laughs> and if you're offended by me, that just means you're victimized by me laughing, which is weird. <laughs> um, uh, and so to move on past that is to recognize what we're really dealing with with the victimization bug then is a form of deep-seated evil. And so the person who's saying, I'm offended, I'm a victim because your face is funny, because it's different than my face, and because people with your face once upon a time in a story I heard did bad things somewhere far away, so now you're bad too, right? That person, that wasn't reasonable what they just did, even though they did it. And everyone knows that. We go, that's crazy. Do you hear them? They're crazy. They're crazy. Yeah, okay. They're not crazy then. They're evil. That's the word you're looking for when you keep saying it's crazy, it's crazy. No, no, no. The biblical word is evil. And the thing about evil is that evil's crazy. That's the point. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. You can't reason with evil, which is what we keep trying to do. If I could just get this one answer from my cousin, then they'd figure it out. No, 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 no. You can't reason with evil. Evil does not make sense. It is demonic. Or uh, let me say it this way. The devil didn't fall on purpose. He fell into chaos. There's no plan. He doesn't have a plan. He's making it all up as he goes, and it's getting worse and worse every step for him, although he's yelling out loud about how great it's getting. And again, if you want to really put this in a nugget, movie reference does it for you, but the Joker in, uh, I think it's uh, The Dark Knight, um, uh, played by Heath Ledger, who dies later and all this, um, the Joker really is very clear on this. Batman thinks he's after the money, and the Joker's like, I'm not after the money. I just want everyone to suffer. I just want chaos to reign. Uh, yeah, that's the devil. And that's the actual devil. <laughs> not, not, not the Joker, but the real one that is a fallen angel. 
managing the nations of this age for his own petty uh, vengeance. He knows how short his time is. and Like a junkyard dog on God's leash, God has let him out on the nations, and none of it's going to make any sense then. Stop trying to have it make sense. Stop saying, well, the leader said this, and then he did that. Like, no, of course not. It's evil. But then, you know, what can you do about evil that's far away? Very little. That's just it. You can pray. <laughs> I've, had several, um, I've had several politicians I've been praying ardently against to lose their office recently. And I, I like, part of me wants to be like, yeah, yeah, I know my prayers for sure. <laughs> um, but part of me is also then just like, yeah, Jesus did that. Jesus absolutely did that. I mean, I asked, I don't think I was the only one who asked, but Jesus removed that person from office, right? Uh, so to, to spot evil far away with prayer is a pretty valuable thing to do. Um, but I think the place to then start fighting evil is where you can, which is in your home, which is where that talking box, but not just that talking box, uh, it's, it's the media of all the voices, all the noises coming at all times. Uh, what they're doing is they're dividing our tongues, So if you can imagine a father in one room watching ESPN, a mother in another room watching Home Gardening Network, uh, boys downstairs playing shoot 'em up something something, and the girls over there scrolling through Instagram with their friends, each one of them is forming a way of thinking that is different from the other ways of thinking in the house. And when they come together, they're going to try to talk past each other. And over time, it's going to get more and more divided, especially then as the kids move out and continue to live far away. And then a generation down, who are you? Where is your culture? What happened to your name? And that kind of thing. The great marker of evil is confusion. That's what chaos does is it confuses. And so the babble that is dividing the tongues of our own homes is the fight we must fight. And while I'm going to sit up here and tell you, you turn off all of that talking nonsense, it'll get easier. It won't fix it. What must be louder is the voice of the Bible as the primary tongue in the home. Yeah, thank you. Amen. Um, The voice of the Bible as the primary tongue in the home. Uh, The great marker of Christianity is communion. And by that, I do mean the Lord's Supper, but I mean more than the Lord's Supper, as if you could get more than Jesus' body. But the word means common union, to share an identity with each other, to have a fellow shape with each other. And the way that that is, is of course, we're all washed with water in Jesus' name. We all eat the same meal when we come together, but we all are given to speak the same words. And that's where we as men must in our homes not say, hey kids, you should read the Proverbs. We should speak Proverbs. It should just come out of our mouths. Hey, there's a problem for that. (laughs) They'll they'll be annoyed by that too, but at least they'll hear it, right? They're not going to go away and read it, but they'll hear it. And it'll begin to grind into their heads a little bit. The great marker of a family that reads the Bible together, individually and together, is going to be a harmonization of their tongue over time. And that is what must be recovered uh, for civilization to continue. (laughs) You know, Christendom, I really believe Christendom became the good that it was because Christianity was at the heart of it, and we had Christian families and Christian men living for hundreds of years with some impetus and control over things, and it just got really, really good. Uh, Now it's not. 
Now we have the opposite of that. It's getting really, really bad, but there's no reason why your house has to go the way of America. I mean, if someone drops a bomb on us, then they drop a bomb on us, but otherwise, there's no reason why your house can't have unity, and that unity be in the identity that you share as sons of the living God. Huh? Which means then, any principle that undermines principle on principle is from the devil. Can I talk about the Eighth Commandment for a second? Uh, most people in our church body, when they quote the Eighth Commandment, or they mention the Eighth Commandment, um, they then proceed to quote Dr. Martin Luther, which I find interesting. Um, I like Dr. Martin Luther. I'm, I am a Lutheran, after all. I, I confess to the Book of Concord of 1580. I think the large catechism, if you haven't read it, what are you doing? Get busy. Go read the large catechism. Uh, so I, I, I'm a fan of Dr. Luther. I'm a fan of the small catechism, the poetic way in which he put together phrases for fathers to teach their kids what the Ten Commandments mean. Like That's a really valuable resource. But if I'm going to say, hey, you're not keeping the Eighth Commandment, you need to do X, Y, Z, and I quote Luther's explanation of the Eighth Commandment, not the Eighth Commandment itself, I mean, is it just me or does something smell funny? Like, it should be the other way, right? So for most of us now, the Eighth Commandment means something like put the best construction on everything. Which, if you apply that to evil, put the best construction on evil, is going to get you surrounded by evil and about to be destroyed. Which is about where we are. So I would suggest that the Eighth Commandment does not mean put the best construction on everything. Um, it, it means tell the truth, and particularly in front of other people, publicly. Bear witness publicly to the truth. Which, if you're privately talking to someone about someone else who's far away, maybe you shouldn't slander them. I agree with Dr. Luther that best construction in something you don't know about is a good idea. But that's not the commandment. The commandment is to not bear a false witness. And so, where am I going with this? What happened in 2020 was that the US government asked me to be a doctor and a policeman in my church. And then it asked me to bear false witness. It insisted that I tell people that covering your face with a piece of cloth will stop aerosol particles from going into your lungs, which it won't. And then it insisted that I did not tell them that covering a your mouth with a piece of cloth for months on end will give you features that look awfully like long COVID. I'm not supposed to tell you that as your pastor, even though I'm supposed to tell you wear the mask. And oh, by the way, six feet apart, and no singing anymore, right? So what I was asked to do was to lie. And while there's other pastors out there that didn't read the same sources that I read, and so they disagree about how the inoculations work, or whether they use baby parts, or whether they're bad for your heart and cause sudden adult death syndrome, and there are other pastors that don't know about that, well, they should tell the truth they think is true too. I think all of us should tell the truth. But the moment you're asking me to undermine truth for the sake of truth, put the best construction on it, it'll keep us united. Oh man, that's a different spirit to me. And, and I don't want anything to do with it. 
And that's what scares me about the dividing line in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod now. Rather than come together and say, all right, guys, we know we got snookered. We know we had a rough time. We're not quite sure what they're telling us because who knows which news source is actually telling the truth at this point. So what we really know is what the Bible says. How about we figure out how to not get snookered again? But that's not what I've heard. What I've heard is let's move on. It'll all be okay. That's what I've heard. And I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. And part of that is because I've spent enough time reading history to know that what we've experienced in the last hundred years is so unique, so unique, that only the most you know, powerful empires in history and the elite in those empires have experienced standards of living like what we've had or even close to approximating what we've had in the modern age. Um, and so the common assumption is it's all going to go on, right? The assumption is the grid's going to work. We lost power twice this winter, um, once for three days. We had a generator next door. There's a shower available there. You know, we got water on hand. We're kind of ready for that, right? I'm not ready for two weeks. And while Illinois hasn't removed nuclear power the way California is almost doing it, and Germany is going to do it like this week, you know, I, I, I don't know. Will the grid always be there? I, I'm not saying it's not going to be. I'm saying it's stupid to assume it will be. Because it's not a biblically mandated reality. It's a fragile modern reality. And I know enough history to know then that when things are hard, they get harder. (laughs) When there's not food, people don't share. (laughs) They take. And so the lesson that I would really have uh, the Missouri Synod learn is the lesson of a place called Magdeburg, which uh, was part of the Reformation. It's, they are signatures, I believe, to some of our confessional documents, but the, um, uh, the, the confession at Magdeburg was a different document, and you can read it. It's out there. I'm just going to tell you the story about it instead. This is during a time uh, called the Augsburg Interim. All the history of Lutheranism sounds so kind of weirdly official, right? Um, the Augsburg Interim, uh, which is this, uh, that the Lutheran armies had lost to the Pope's armies quite badly, and the Pope took over Germany and uh, uh, made Lutheranism more or less illegal for all the Lutherans. And this is at the point of a sword. And they institute this thing called the Augsburg Interim, which is a set of rules about what you as Lutheran pastors have to do or else you're gonna be in big trouble with the Pope and the actual police, right, at this point. these, these things include things that have to do with the sacrifice of the mass particularly, which if you know your confessions, you know this is a deplorable reality to us, that the sacrifice of the mass is the greatest symbol of the Antichrist that could possibly be, um, even while still being the Lord's Supper at the same time, uh, as God wills it. Uh, so in any case, um, the interim is being imposed at the point of a sword. So most places are just doing this. The pastors are saying, all right, well, I would die if I don't do what the government says. And so I'll tell them what they say to say, you have to have the sacrifice of the mass and go to confession and not eat meat on Fridays and back to Roman Catholicism for all of you. Magdeburg is a city that says, uh, no. No, no. We're, we're going to keep doing what we do. And uh, they end up surrounded by an army in a siege, the siege at Magdeburg. Um, and while they're being sieged or the siege is preparing, they're having a bit of debate internally, like what right do we have to rebel? 
We're rebelling against the empire. The empire is Roman Catholic because the Pope's Roman Catholic and the Pope is telling him what to do and he says we should be Roman Catholic, so now we're rebels. Now, do we have to submit to the Pope and become Catholic because he has the authority? Um, and after asking, do we have the right to resist, they come to the conclusion, yes, you have the right to resist. Um, there's a lot that goes into this. The document's worth reading. reading. It, it builds on, first, you have the right to flee. You know this from the New Testament. Jesus says it, flee to the mountains. When you see the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. It means if the city's about to collapse, you can leave. <laughs> you don't have to stay there and let the tyrants fire everything. So the right to flee is established by Christ in the scriptures. And then from there, well, if you have the right to flee, you're taking up action in order to stop something. So you, you pretty much reasonably have the right to stop something from happening too, to stop evil. You have the right to stop evil. Uh, uh, and so from there, you have the right to, to pick up arms to defend yourself. Um, and this is the position of the confession at Magdeburg. And I, I, think, I think I agree with it. Because the alternative is this, to believe that the scripture mandates that we tolerate betrayal, that we tolerate being compelled by fear, and that we tolerate and even advocate and propagate evil. Again, if I just turn a blind eye to the Jews being marched away by the Nazis, I'm participating. So Magdeburg's lesson is, no, you Christian man, you Christian town, you Christian family, your conscience is good, and you have the right to take a stand. Whatever that means to you, under God, in the knowledge that judgment's going to be done, like whatever the historical results of it are, um, that's what God wanted to have happen. But that final judgment, your justification, has very little to do with this. Other than that, it's the impetus behind it, that you stand as a Christian now. And so since you know you effectively can't die, like, again, what are you afraid of? Why are you trying to stay alive so hard since you can't die? And I don't mean go test him by jumping off the Temple Mount. I mean just walk as one who's upright, right? And in this, know that false laws are not actually laws. And I know there's some cops in the room, and they might... Uh, they might disagree with me. I'd be interested to hear their, their thoughts on this. But I would suggest to you that so far as the angels are concerned, if the speed limit says 40, but everyone drives 48, and the cops don't pull you over till 52, then the speed limit's 52. That's the actual speed limit. So a false law, a law they say, that's the law, but, but it's not enforced and it's not good. It actually says do evil. You don't have to do that. And someone says, but maintain the bond of unity and love. No, no, you really don't have to do it now. <laughs> yeah. um, because it's not going to maintain unity and love by keeping a lie alive in the church. And that's what I would have us as a body do, as men do now, walking forward. I don't know which lie they're going to tell next. Um, I know Ukraine's been interesting. I know that the dollar's fascinating right now. Um, what, what really is underway? Couldn't tell you. Don't really want to know. Um, but convinced, absolutely convinced that my prayers are being answered locally. I'm asking for Christian men in my congregation to take ownership of their faith, to be ready to stand, 
to believe it's valuable to have their kids and their grandkids live in the same community and be at the same altar because over time that's how civilizations are built. Uh, and so why not try since nobody else is except a collapsing reality, right? Um, all of that comes out of uh, a false law is not a law. Right. Um, do good. You have the, not just the right, but the duty to do good. Um, so, what about the white noise? The question I've been asking is, can we continue eating whatever we feel like and complain about the results? So if you want to eat whatever you feel like, then you're just going to have to get what comes. And what I, I just hear us doing is complaining and not changing. And I, it's, if, if you just want to keep floating, keep floating. God willing, the grace of God in Jesus is enough. Um, let me say it this way, though, too. I'm pretty sure that the way the seasons of history go, there are some times when Christians can do things, and those things are fine. And there's other times when those things become great dangers to them. And so I think Christians were able to live in 1950 and 1960, and, and the, the media's ability to change what we thought, it would have been fine if it had stayed there. But it didn't stay there. It's 24-7 now. It's in your ears all the time. It's in your eyes all the time. Um, can we keep then just letting it be what we eat and say, how did I get this way? So at least stop saying how to get this way. Um, but I, I would really prefer that you consider you know, better nutrition. And I'm not talking about food, right? I'm talking about what you see, what you hear. Um, better nutrition. Uh, because if Christianity cannot assert itself as the dominant narrative in your eyes and ears, then it is by definition something less than Christianity. It has to be the loudest thing in your life, or it's becoming less than the loudest thing in your life. And he doesn't decrease, he increases. And we decrease. Yeah. So am I, am I trying to make you feel guilty? No, I, I want to like get you a little zealous, actually. You know, kind of, kind of, rah, get going a little bit here, right? Um, because the issue is not poor me or poor us. Um, victimization is apathy, is death, and we don't need any of that. The issue is that we are the kingdom of God. We are the kingdom of God. And that whatever the world is going to try to throw at us, it, it can't stop heaven from coming down in us to the corners of the entire earth. And so since that is true for me and my house, I'm not just going to like kind of open up my mouth a little, take a bite, and then try to live as fun as I can while I go. I'm going to open up my mouth wide and ask him to fill it. I want a spirit like Elijah's, uh, which is able, or even Elisha's, the better story, able to look a man in the eye and make him turn away in shame because you know the truth, and he does too. Uh, to be that aware of what I believe about Jesus, yeah, that's, that's my prayer, and I think it's a promise. I think it's a promise given to every single one of us um, that you're Jonathan, that you're Hezekiah, and that you're Saul. I want to close today, we'll have questions too, but I want to close today by reading uh, Ephesians 4, 17 through 6, 18, but I'm going to skip a little. I'm going to skip from 521 to 610 and just let this be the conclusion of the matter from my end uh, in terms of the presentation. I'm reading from the New King James, which I do find to be the most beautiful 
current English translation available. Um, again, beginning at 4.17, and then I'll skip from 5.21 to, to 6.10. Not that I don't believe the stuff about man and woman is important, but I think you've heard it. Um, I want to focus on the rest of it. He says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed, and I would, that if is a since, it's a because, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for the saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unlawful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. 
Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Uh, 6 verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith, which which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may know how to open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. In Jesus' name, thank you. questions later, question and answers. Um, and then I'll get some announcements about the afternoon, the rest of the afternoon. So uh, if anybody has questions here. Hold I'll hold the mic for you guys. So I've got a second one here. We're recording. So. Hey there. Uh, a lot of us work in organizations where you know, maybe they weren't woke when we started, but now we've got yeah. initiatives and it's we're getting closer and closer to being pressured into lying yeah add your pronouns your email signatures things like that right knowing that we can't all move off and farm out in the country but right. we have a lot of different vocations this is becoming a reality what right. thoughts do you have for those of us who have to deal with yeah this is tough right um the first thought is local matters. So your context is your context, and brothers should be patient with brothers. 
Uh, so to recognize that the, the complexity of any one of these decisions is going to be different for different people. What you're going to have to sacrifice if you were to try to find another job is different for different people. And to just demand that everyone have the same responses is pretty intense. Because um, uh, I, I, the ideal the ideal is that you just quit and get another job, right? Like it's obviously, that's what you should do. Right? But that's, that's not always possible in reality. And so what must be pursued is your integrity in the system. And what does that mean? Well, I, you read the Proverbs and figure that out. Um, your integrity means that you can walk in and do whatever you've done and walk out and know they didn't change you. So if putting he, him on the tagline in your email doesn't change you, that's where it gets iffy, though, right? Um, how long can you go into that fight? And here's the thing. If you don't know it's changing you, then it is. But there's also the level where it's like, all right, it's espionage for me now. I'm going to, as a spy, say he, him. I'm a spy for Christianity in this building. Right? They're not going to know I'm a Christian in that sense. I plan to, in fact, change them for the better. <laughs> uh, how? By being a wise man in the midst of these insane, evil people. Um, and that means then the wise man is going to hold his tongue more often than not. He's not going to offer to correct idiocy unless it's connected to the job directly. Um, and then when asked, you're going to be judicious. Uh, you're, you're not going to tell your enemy you're hiding under the bush. Why would you do that? Don't tell your enemy that you're a spy for Christianity working a job in the accounting department. <laughs> you know? um, uh, the thing is, though, you have, to, you have to be that against what's going on there and know I'm isolated, I'm ostracized, and that's part of psychological warfare, to get you isolated so that you feel alone, so that you weaken to the pressures, that over time it normalizes, and at the very least you're a coward later when they need you to be. And that's what you don't want to let happen, right? But so my answer is not leave. My answer is figure out how to fight in the trenches. But you're in the trenches. You're, you're absolutely in trenches. So that's, if you, if you haven't listened to anything on World War I, like some good hardcore hard, hard history of World War I, go do it. The trenches is a metaphor that is, um, is, is horrifying, really. Uh, what we're facing, what you're facing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Back that way. Um, so we, we talk a lot about white noise for like electronics and things like that. But do you think it's possible to have like white noise for things that are not electronic related, like because you know sports or sure. hunting and things like that? Like, yeah. what, how would like how would you fight against that kind of white right. noise? So for me, the white noise is is a summarization of post electric or post uh, steam engine uh, petrol engine life. So. The modern world's technology is what the Amish don't have. The reason the Amish don't have it is because they recognized it was going to change them as a people. Uh, and it was going to, they weren't going to be what they were on the other side. Whatever they were going to be, it was going to be different. They chose not to go that route. Our ancestors went that route. But what that means is then, so like sports, I mean, the idea that I would drive two and a half hours for a soccer game, like 150 years ago, to hitch up the horse and ride two and a half hours for a soccer game every weekend, no one's doing that. That's just too much work, you know? And so we've got this skewed view of what we can do, because what we don't realize is it's too much work now, too. With the car, it's still too much work, but we'll do it anyway, because we can. But it's just, it's dragging on us. 
So then white noise is not just media inputs, right? It's anything that the electricity and the engine have allowed you to do in abundance that once upon a time you could only do in small amounts. I mean, so you want to talk nutrition. You can eat a red apple kind of off the tree 24-7, 365. That's weird. That's super weird historically. Right? You should only be able to eat apples for a couple of months, if that. Maybe your preserves and some apple butter will last you through. But like the ability to just have apples at every meal, and then we've done this with all food, and now we're just eating whatever we want. They couldn't even have done that 100 years. They couldn't have done it, let alone what they've done to change the apple and all this, a whole different thing. So to me, the white noise is all of that. And stopping it isn't about that it's going to stop. It's just about standing firm in the whirlwind and not getting moved off what I know to be true, which includes at the foundation then scripture. But from the wisdom of scripture, I'm pretty convinced natural philosophy that we can study nature and we can be certain. Like there's, that's, that's actually there. Right? I know quantum physics and blah, blah, it's, but it's still here. Uh, so we can study things and, and declare truths as well. But if, if I'm trying to find the right answer to something and I'm given 10 options, that's harder than if I'm trying to find the right answer and I'm given two options. This has been shown. You are happier if you go to the store for whatever, you're going to buy a, a vacuum cleaner and there's only two options. If you buy one, you go home, doesn't matter which vacuum, and they test you six months later, are you happy with your purchase? Versus there were 10 options, and you buy one, go home. If there were two options, you're happy. If there were more options, you're not happy. Why? Because you think you missed something. You're disappointed in something that you could have done, but if it's just two options, it's not that, it's not that complex, right? So the modern world has just made everything operate this way. To me, the TV is a beautiful symbol of this. Um, and in fact, <laughs> a talking image again, which is, if you read Revelation, there's an image, it talks, it's part of the end of the world, it's kind of, hmm. Um, and I, I don't actually believe that eschatology that would lead to me pinning the tail on the talking image, but still, you gotta scratch your head a little bit. Um, the, uh, the, the big, big issue is just the overindulgence in everything and it's just drowning us. We're just not made for this much. Life is better when it's simple and quiet, which doesn't mean get rid of electricity, but it does mean maybe don't have everything electric all the time, right? Um, <laughs> I wish we'd probably move on to the next question. I'm just laughing at how all the new electric stuff, electric stuff breaks too. So like, you can't have it all electric all the time. You can have it for like three months and then you gotta go get a new one. Um, so there was another hand that was back in that same direction. Yeah. Uh, this is sort of a follow-up question uh, to a conversation before about the clarification on the one Bible verse. Uh, there, is there, you know, naturally we can ask our pastors about, you know, verses that we're having troubles with. Yep. But not every pastor is terribly great at translating. Yeah. Um, so is there a resource that can help when, because like the verse I was struggling with, it actually contributed to me actually backing off Sons of Solomon for a while. Yeah, it right. Burdening, it was burdening me that much. Right, right. Just that little clarification, that one two-word clarification, you know, was so huge in taking the burden off. Right. So looking forward, is there a resource or group of resources where as we come across verses that we're, having, that we're struggling with, mm. you know, that we can kind of do that legwork because I'm assuming you don't want all of us calling you 
<laughs> well, what does this yeah. verse mean? I, yeah, I wish, I wish I could point you to a resource that would be that useful, but this is kind of the ongoing trial of Christianity is translation. So the gift of tongues means that it keeps moving. Um, and to, to put it down in language once and for all won't work because the languages continue to decay out from underneath us. Um, so what you ran into in that one verse, you know, he will give to his beloved sleep, um, is, is a, a, a mistranslation uh, that sat there for hundreds of years and no one's even really thought about it. It's not a dogmatic principle or anything, right? And so the only reason I have a view of it is because it was binding my conscience. And so I dug into to try to figure out what it said. But that reality of having corners of the Bible that need to be retranslated, it's just never going to cease. Um, and in that way, that's what pastors are supposed to be. And then a pastor is supposed to also be the resource that if he doesn't know, he can find out how to know. That, that, that's what he's, he can go find the books or call the people that might know kind of thing. So I would suggest, you know, you keep going to your pastor and, and don't take no for an answer, right? Um, but then here's the other thing you made me think of. Uh, and I'm going to say this initially as kind of a, a jibe. Um, because we missed an opportunity as Lutherans and as the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, and we, we, we're not going to get it back anytime soon. That opportunity was sometime around 1950, 1955. Um, at this time, my church, St. Paul Lutheran Church, was over like 1,800 members, uh, the, the smallest of the major downtown churches in Rockford, Illinois, including four other Lutheran churches, all ELCA now. Um, but they were all bigger. Uh, over 1,800 members, over 450 kids in the school. They had church in the gym for like 15 years because it was the only place they could fit everybody. Everyone lived in the neighborhood, too. And what did we do? Well, Lutheran grade school, um, we taught them to be American Lutheran Christians. What did we not do with that captive audience of, uh, of children? Um, we didn't teach them to read the New Testament in Greek. That's what we didn't do. We didn't even think about it. And over, over 50 years, we had probably the best education system in the history of the world for any small group of people. And we could have, you all would have known how to read the New Testament in Greek if we'd just done it in day school from the start. Why didn't we? I don't know. And I don't want it to be a jibe at the guys who were there. They were there. They had their fights, whatever. But here's my answer again. Like, learn one of the biblical languages. That's my answer. You can. It's going to be really hard. You're not going to be able to do it in a weekend. It's going to be the rest of your life, and it'll be totally worth it. Uh, there are online resources that you can use for this. Um, you can subscribe to classes and so forth. Um, but th that is really, you know, if you want to find the corners, or you're in that moment where you're like, wait, what does that one really mean? Like, if you get just under the surface of either Greek or Hebrew with your computer at this point, I have on this app an app called uh, um, uh, Logos, or, or uh, the Bible app. Um, I can, within a moment, be on any Greek or Hebrew verse. I can have it looked up and translated for me, including all the grammar. And because I have the dangerous level of knowledge to know what the grammar means, I don't even have to translate it. I can just put it together in my head and learn what it meant. right? And so you can get there um, slowly and over time. Greek's probably easier, but Hebrew's an amazing thing. Um, so that, that's part of my answer. Yeah? Yeah. 
I'd like to comment on some of the things you said at the beginning of your presentation this afternoon. I've been aware, and I think I'm correct, that we are currently living in the times of Noah. If you read Genesis 6, at that time in the antediluvian world, the Lord looked down on the creation and it repented God of the fact that he had made man. And the reason he said that is because the violence and the going on made him sick of what was going on. And as you all know, there were eight people in Noah's Ark. And then God decided by his grace to try and start over again. But in our country, since January 1st of this year, there have been 15 mass shootings in this country where numerous people have been killed and others have been injured. Also since the first of this year, there have been 146 gun incidents, not rising to the level of the mass shootings, but where crimes have been committed, some people have been injured, and other acts of violence and so forth which indicates that the whole country, so many people at so many levels, are just resorting to violence with the slightest uh, provocation. And so I just see uh, now the importance, of course, of us trying to take a stand and speak the word of God to people and try to communicate to them how they can love their neighbor and love God and somehow avoid all of this. Mm. And I think to myself, where can I take any comfort? Well, Jesus said that the days of tribulation for the sake of the elect mm -hmm. would be shortened. And so I don't know how far we're going to have to go before the Lord says, that's enough. And, you know, the, the trumpets are going to sound. And a lot of these people that you know been giving us all this grief are going to be caught short, and they're just going to be lost. Yeah, and I, I don't want them to be lost. God doesn't really want anybody to lost. No, but the, he. The scripture says that he wants all men to be saved, but that he knows his omniscience tells him they're not all going to be saved, and that's a horrible thing to come to that realization. So I, how do I? Can I, I stop you on that last one? I think it's a good thing to come to that realization. I think that's what we must do. We must realize that the wicked, the re reprobate, are not going to be saved and that, that is, that's glorious. It's actually good. Revelation says this, that they're all going to be cast in the fire and we're going to sing hallelujah. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard if it's like, that's my sister we're talking about there, right? Like, we don't like that. But the thing is, that's what the Bible says. There will be vindication. That's vindication, true. that's right. And, and we will see the justice of it all, which will show us the grace of it all even more. Um, I want to I talk to what you said a little bit because the, the violence particularly uh, I think is tied to atheism or a practical atheism or uh, believing that there's nothing. So atheism is kind of a, a bad way of saying nihilism, which is a bad way of saying belief in nothing. There is nothing. And if you tell little children from the time they're two until the time that they're 15, that they're nothing, they're from nothing, and the only thing that matters is their sexual urges, they're eventually going to kill each other. They're not just gonna have sex with each other. That's how it will start. And then the ones that aren't cool enough to have sex with everybody else, they're gonna get angry. And we're watching that happen again. Uh, 
before our very eyes. But, okay, there's a bunch you said. Um, does that mean it's the end of the world? I wanna, I wanna talk about the end of the world. Um, so I wanna talk about the end of the world, and I also wanna talk about, uh, I got that flood down there, okay. Like, I like trying to imagine all the possible futures. It's a really bad habit, don't try it. But you, if you get them all, you get a big picture, and then you can kind of worry about it, right? And, um, but in, in all the possible futures, like, on the one hand, there is the end of Western civilization. On the other hand, there is the end of the world. And I don't assume they're the same thing, although they could be. Uh, this Christendom really is kind of unique in history, although there was an Eastern version that already collapsed in the you know, Middle Ages. Um, and so this Western version that we're in, it's gone with a nice long run. Does this collapse mean you know, the end of the world? I, I, I don't know. But if we're going to collapse and we're going to swing back as a civilization, kind of as far as we've swung forward, um, I can imagine it getting pretty bad pretty violent, more violent than it is right now, but there are certain uh, factors that have to be removed before that, and one of them is easy trade for food. Right? So when and if they try to usher in new currencies, and if it doesn't work, and the, and the um, transportation networks with lack of petrol fuel make it so you can't all buy cheap bread, like that factor will catalyze a lot of different things if we get to that point. I don't know that we're gonna to get to that point before Jesus comes back. The world could end today. This is the thing about the end of the world, is it doesn't necessarily have a climax that we all watch right before it happens. Uh, no one knows the day or the hour, right? So I wanna live a life where I hold all of that kind of in a, a hopefully a casual tension. <laughs> so, well, I'm gonna dance then if the world's ending today, maybe, or if maybe it's the dark ages tomorrow, I should at least enjoy uh, what I have of today. Um, so there's that issue. Um, and then, so the idea of the Noetic Flood, um, fascinating. I, I just found a book recently about pre and post flood history that's kind of blowing my mind um, because it quotes a resource I'd never heard of. And I'm a little leery to share it with you now because I, I haven't looked into this further, but apparently there's a resource called the Book of Jasher. Has anybody ever heard of the Book of Jasher? couple of you. Which, by the way, that word yasar, um, the dual, the, the, the plural two straight lines, yasar, that's Jasher. So the book of uprightness, the book of straightness. Um, the book of Jasher is kind of a parallel history to Genesis uh, all the way through kind of uh, sometime in, um, in the early kingdoms or something like that. It's got a lot of dates and whatnot on it. And it's, it's probably apocryphal, I don't know, but one of the little stories in it is that Adam foretold a destruction by water and a destruction by fire, right? Uh, and so, well, we've gone through the destruction by water, we're waiting for the destruction by fire, like that all fits, right? Um, so, but does there have to be a worldwide cataclysm for a civilization to collapse? So when Genghis Khan went from Mongolia to Spain, and crushed all the dilapidated, corrupt, formerly Christian, Eastern Christian countries that were there. Um, well, that, that wasn't the flood quite. Um, it was God's judgment, his measurement in time, knocking down those who say, we have his name, uh, when they didn't. And that's where I kind of think we are then now. If you want to have the framework for the moment, um, it's kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah in Jerusalem, right? Like, like they took over the temple and are throwing rainbow flags in the temple. Um, 
this doesn't look good. Like, if you're looking biblically at America right now, like, whatever God's going to do to this nation, it's going to be nasty. Because we're going to deserve it because of what we're doing to children. And, you know, <laughs> golly, I haven't mentioned abortion yet once, right? Um, they talk about a great evil. So um, you don't need a flood for that. Uh, that said, um, I think it's worth asking, what would a biblical proportion flood of information look like? Because I kind of think we're in one. It's a new kind of babble that's dropping on us, right? So we're trying to build a tower to the sky, and we're going to get dispersed and confused, becoming barbaric, unable to build the things we used to be able to build, can't even use the tools. I can't. All those tools yesterday, I can probably use a sledgehammer. But aside from that, right, I, I mean, crowbar. Um, so to realize that the, the, the measurement, the just punishment that's coming down upon this nation is one that we should stand up and be like, bring it. And if the fire comes and it hits me and my family, we all die, it's fine, we rise again. But I want to also believe that he promises to the remnant, the remnant survives. The remnant survives, why? To tell the story to another generation. So my prayer isn't just, dear Jesus, can I live to be 80 so I can golf more? My prayer is, Jesus, can I live to tell my great-grandsons about Jesus? And can this church that I'm in survive whatever's coming so we can keep worshiping you here afterwards and tell everyone else who needs to hear about you when they're repentant because their life got destroyed about you? And then to know that his remnant, the church, always does have that survival happen. And then that's who we are right now. Like, believe it. Start praying for it, right? Or, or go back and watch, you know, the Marvel timeline one more time. You know, memorize some more jokes from it, right? That's the other option. Um, and to me, that's a... That's a massive transformation in the way that you view yourself in history. Um, and it doesn't have to be the end of the world to get excited about. Like, a thousand-year empire is about to collapse, but you can plant the seeds that in 400 years becomes the next empire. Like, hey, if I had to make up a video game to live, why not? It sounds all right. right? It sounds all right. So I think I hit most of what you said. Um, oh, oh, one other thing. Uh, yeah, aside from potentially pre-flood civilizations, um, I don't think there's any, any civilization that has officially made uh, homosexuality and kind of the, the trans stuff is another level, but homosexuality as marriage, no one's ever done that. Nobody. Like Rome, like you had homosexuals in Rome. You had people doing licentious stuff in Rome, but it was never officially what they were doing. <laughs> it was always behind things. And here we are, and it's official. So whatever God did to Tyre and Sidon, right? whatever God did to Assyria, uh, I think you've got to be ready for the United States to get some kind of blowback for what we're doing. And whether that's an Islamic conquering, or whether it's uh, a gradual descent into just pagan chaos, I, I don't know. But your congregation can be an ark, is an ark, is an ark. So get on the ark. Start working with the people on the ark. And part of this means turning away the people who shouldn't be on the ark. Like if they're going to sit there and say, why are you building an ark? Well, then you, know, you don't have to be here. <laughs> no. That's hard, though, when, you're, when your church is struggling for membership, where you're not sure you know, where the next generation is going to come from, and someone says, I'm mad I'm leaving because of this, that, and the other thing. Or a visitor comes in, and they, they walk out scared. We had some visitors on Easter Sunday, and... Um, 
St. Paul's becoming quite a place. Uh, I've been working on not just expository preaching verse by verse through the Bible, but trying to get the congregation to talk back to me. So eliciting amens and hallelujahs and, and other things. So he is risen. Yeah, that's, that's the easy one, right? And so, so you know, Easter Sunday, uh, we have these, you know, oh, I was a Lutheran once, um, uh, but we haven't been Lutheran a long time, but we want to check out a church. We're here, and I'm kind of like, I don't think you know what you're in for. Um, and, <laughs> uh, you know, here's a bulletin, and you know, talked a little about communion for a second. Um, and, uh, uh, but then, you know, we go through this, this kind of uproarious shouting during the sermon and this loud singing, and, and they, they snuck out almost without saying hello to me. And part of me was just like, like that's sad. That's a family in their 50s that, that we, we would do well to have them. That's the kind of people we want around. And then I thought, but they don't want to be here. So why on earth would I want to try to keep them here? They heard a sermon on the Word of God. They heard people confess in Jesus' name, and that's, that's not what they're in for. That's not what they want. Oh, so what? So whatever your congregation is, be that way. Right? Um, it doesn't mean be standoffish or hate the visitor. You need to seek hospitality. But recognize that building the ark doesn't mean just get anybody on board. Um, you have enemies. That's how I started this, right? Um, and you really want the enemies to be silenced, uh, and that, that would be stopping the white noise. Um, do we want to do one more? Thank you for your uh, emphasis on the problems of entertainment and white noise and uh, moving away from the talking boxes. I wanted to ask about, uh, for you to continue a little bit more on what you think needs to change in our churches to address the fact, as you pointed out, when uh, you have somebody who we can, we can make the church library as pure as possible and all the, the bulletins can be just right, but you know people are watching Oprah at yeah. home, so they're getting some another or or other things. They're getting a totally different message throughout the week. So what needs to change in our churches? Uh, and then also, where have you? How have you observed the changes that happen in families where they do try to get off of the addiction to the screen and to the the boxes? Uh, how has that gone? And uh, how what lessons might be learned from those who have tried to get off of those things? Yes, yeah, that's. that's there's a lot there. Um, so, I think to ask what, what needs to change in our churches, um, it's more like what needs to change back. <laughs> um, uh, and you have two different answers, because one's going to be how, how I answer that question for pastors, and one's how I answer that question for laymen. And while it's good to believe that we're all brothers in Christ, uh, once you're in the pastoral office, it, there is a certain level of understanding that you just end up sharing with each other, and it's it's pretty impossible to explain. Doesn't mean we're better, but we're different. Um, so, so my answer to pastors is important, though, and and that is what needs to change is the pastors just need to believe a lot less in themselves. Um, and most pastors uh, believe way too much in themselves while criticizing themselves constantly. But they're always trying to do more. And that is a, a destructive force in their life. It doesn't necessarily destroy the congregation. I think it destroys them. It certainly was destroying me. Um, so it's not that a pastor needs to change to do less now. He just needs to believe he has less he can do. 
Um, he is to stand and speak, and then those words are going to do what they do, but the results are not in his hands, and that's really important for a lady to understand that then, right? So what could I have done last Sunday to keep that visiting family here, right? And you come up, Pastor, how come they won't come back, right? To come to an understanding that, well, they won't come back because they don't belong here. That's why they won't come back. Right? So why are we going to change to make them belong? We, we want to change to not be like that, right? Stop being people who will change. <laughs> uh, that's kind of the, uh, the answer there. But then that means changing back. And so I feel like this answer is too easy, but um, the men have to own their faith in the parish. They can't be going to church because their wives go to church. And they certainly can't just with every decision say, well, honey, what do you think? No. Um, it's not about the women all talking at the voters' assembly, but that symbolizes it. That symbolizes it. You can get them all to not talk and still have the same problem. Um, uh, but the, the men have to own the faith as if it's their own. And that means you've got to go home and do something with it. Which doesn't mean live a total life of perfect sanctification or any of that kind of nonsense. But it has to be present in your life because it's your religion. <laughs> and and it, it's been a hobby and a club for a long time. A long time. Now you're asking about the family um, and, and trying to, to have less black mirror, you know, in the family. Um, that's been a slow and, and hard struggle to figure out for us. But, you know, my, my advice on the far end is rip the bandit off. You know, you try to peel the bandit off and they're just going to scream more. Just rip the bandit off. And whatever that means, right, you got to figure that out. For us, ultimately, it was for our youngest three, they had iPods screen-based ones, it was just they're taken away, just done. And there was a week and a half of, and then they forgot, you know, they moved on. Um, movies, you know, they were, when we stopped watching movies altogether, it was sort of like, well, this is father's idea. He's going to try it for a while. We'll try it with him. Like, nobody was really very excited about it. Um, uh, but so I remember after about nine months of, of being movie-free, my, uh, my daughter wanted to go see Black Widow. It was like the first of the next Marvel movies to come out. And some, some of her friends wanted to go see it, and she was old enough to see it. I didn't really want her to see it. I kind of knew it was going to be a little objectification of women and whatnot, among other things. And, um, but I said, OK, here's, here's my rule. Okay, you can go to this movie, but you have to at least three times over the course of the movie pull yourself out of the movie and look at everybody around you and ask what they're doing and what they're thinking. Judge them. Look at them and judge them. What do you see? And she came back and she said, that's the weirdest thing. It's like they're all not there. It's like they're all not there. So for me, that's the win. Not that my daughter wasn't using it at home or whatever, but that she saw it changed people. And most of our kids over time have, have come to that. The younger they are, the less they, they know anything, right? So where's my son at? You know, he maybe is, is the least having gone through those aha moments at this point. Um, but all of them uh, don't get bored ever. Like they just don't get bored. They go do something. They go find something, right? Um, so the, 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 
the positive net result in the family has been huge. Communication-wise, in terms of how we talk to each other, although we found that there's always a, a way in. So you know, the, the language that they end up using when they fight with each other, that's the language we would never teach them. They're getting it from reading too many juvenile fiction books from the library, right? And so you know, re reading isn't always good, especially if all the kids in the books are snotty. Uh, and then that's the only way that the kids learn how to talk. But this is the, exactly it. So if your kid's only learning how to talk from watching the screen, then that's all they're going to know how to do and say. Uh, um, and what we want to do with our kids was give them a leg up on that. Um, I assume all of them are going to have to use phones, cell phones, at some point in their life. It's part of modern life. Um, I tried to get rid of mine. I went to a flip phone and I found that I couldn't get into my bank account and I couldn't do all this other stuff. It's all tied to your phone now. I mean, they've, they've locked you into a monitoring system. It's really something. You know, if, you've, if you don't want to be a slave, it's too late. <laughs> uh, but, but within the family, it's expect them to resist. Expect them to hate the idea. Tell them, oh well. And then three years later, it'll be worth it. So make that line a line you draw carefully and with intention, and then strive for understanding as well. Strive to help them understand it. So let me use a different example that maybe, maybe helps, maybe doesn't. But you know, we transitioned to carnivore as well in the last two and a half years. So my family eats, uh, generally speaking, we do not eat carbohydrates. We, we just avoid carbohydrates. We eat protein and fat um, and water. Uh, and we'll eat onions. Uh, but the reason for this is I believe it's really good for you. Um, ends up strengthening your body, among other things. Uh, but we weren't going to just tell our kids, hey, tomorrow, no more pizza, only steak. Right? Like that, we knew that wasn't going to work, even though I'd taken this for several months and it had dropped 30 pounds in two months and all this stuff that it did for me. I'm strong as an ox right now for my age, I think. Um, and it's just the food I eat. Uh, but how do, I, how do I pass this on to my kids who they've been eating um, all sorts of stuff, and you know what kids eat, uh, but I've got kids with severe food allergies, so we're in like the, the, the gluten-free aisle up the, up the out the other side, which is potato starch and rice starch and all this other stuff. So how do, I, how do I remove these things that my kids have loved to eat and give them the good stuff? Well, we didn't do that at all. Instead, we just put a big piece of steak on their plate with everything else and said, you eat the steak first. That's where we started. And we got them to get used to filling up on protein. And then they realized, oh, if I fill up on protein, I'm not very hungry for the rest of it. <laughs> Win, right? You realized something. Win. Yeah? And then from there, we've moved to where now um, some of our kids still are like, ah, oh, man, I missed the, I missed the this, I missed the that. I got a couple kids that they're more hardcore than I am. Like, I ate popcorn the other night. They wouldn't. You know, like, I'll feel bad afterwards, and I, I did, in fact, feel bad afterwards. Not in my head, but in my stomach. Um, so the point of that story is not to get you to do carnivore, wink, wink, but uh, <laughs> the point of that story is if you're going to try to establish a new set of rules in the household, take small, small wins, but ones you know you're going to win, and then hold the ground you got, and then position for another, another attack. And so if, if they're all on their own devices all the time, you're not going to take it all the way at once. But you can set screen limits. You can set after sundown limits. Like that's a big one for us. Our oldest daughter still has her iPad. And a major rule for me is if the sun's down, that doesn't turn on. And it's not about you might watch bad movies at night. It's about how blue light makes you sleep bad. I don't want her to sleep bad. I care about her health. Right? And so I want her to have a couple hours before bed where she tones down and turns off the, um, the endorphin rush that those things create. So, 
how do you teach that piece by piece and then transition small wins? One more story, as there's the last question, but it's, it's, it's like the carnivore one. So this can serve you in more than one way, but it just illustrates the point. Um, I remember taking the presidential physical fitness test as like a sixth grader. Anybody else take that thing? Uh, and like you had to do the pull-ups. I was great. I was going to get my badge and then pull-ups. Oh, man. Man, I did not. I think I got like two. And this one kid, he's doing like 12. He's, how's that guy do that? And I, I was so scrawny. I never could do pull-ups. And in my, my 40s then, um, I'm listening to this guy named Tim Ferriss, and he says, well, if you've never been able to do pull-ups, do this. Get a pull-up bar and get a chair. Stand at the bar with your head above the, um, the bar and grabbing it like you had just done a pull-up on the chair. And have the chair back just a little bit so you can step off and hold yourself there and just slowly lower yourself down. Do it once a day for a week, then do as many pull-ups as you can. You'll do two or three. It's unbelievable. You don't have to do a single pull-up. Just do one pull-down every day for a week. You'll jump in your pull-up capacity. Small wins guarantee great gains eventually. So that's, that's that answer there. Yeah? All right. Hey, guys, thank you so much for letting me be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor 
of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the beautiful inland Northwest.